Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. Because technology, platforms, and customer expectations are changing so rapidly, brands are in need of service and IT consulting firms like SoftServe. SoftServe has more than 450 clients around the world and across industries such as healthcare, manufacturing, retail, financial services, among many others. Adam Gabral is the president of Strategic Verticals and Industry Solutions for North America. And on today's episode, he details some of the challenges SoftServe's clients are facing and how things like AI, blockchain, and more can be useful as they deal with new paradigm shifts every day. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I oftentimes start these episodes in a very familiar, similar way. But with you, I actually want to start a bit different because you were a highly recommended guest from a previous guest, Nick James. And I want to start with his quote, and then uh, you can fill in the context. He said, Adam is extremely talented and intelligent. The amount of challenges he has faced in the last couple of years is probably a great masterclass for anyone running a business or standing up a digital technology org. So with that, I want to hear what are some of these big challenges? That was my first question. Like, What comes to mind when you hear that quote? What have you been dealing with? So um, maybe I could just give a little bit of background about myself. Um, I've been in the technology industry in various roles over the course of the last 20 years or so. Started early on in roles focused around sales and client services, and eventually was a part of a team that grew a startup called Mobiquity. It came out right about the time that Steve Jobs stood on stage and waved this fancy piece of glass and said, mobile's going to change the world. We're actually a part of the team that built some of the first commercial applications for companies like Fidelity, um, Weight Watchers, Wawa, just to name a few. And we grew that startup over the course of about four years from a very small starting founding team to 
um, close to six to 700 people in less than four years and was a part of that kind of first wave of digitization when mobile was really starting to get big. And then I joined a, a larger consultancy um, called Virtusa, and I was a part of a team that had the firm at about half a billion in revenue, and we grew that to about 1.2 billion um, before the exit to a private equity firm. And most recently, I joined a firm called SoftServe, which is a Ukrainian-founded global IT consultancy. And as I'm sure everyone knows by looking at the news these days with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, being a part of a company that frankly is in a war zone and managing through that in terms of providing relocation assistance to our team members, or frankly, just trying to keep everyone moving forward so that we can continue to do business, but also as a primacy, make sure that the safety of our teams, their families, and supporting, frankly, a nation that's fighting for its freedom against an unjust invasion. So um, <laughs> I guess I've had lots of different areas that I've worked through in my career and um, from high growth organizations to obviously over the last um, four or five months managing this, through this conflict. I've really seen, I think, kind of all sides of business where it's in the good times and the bad and, and trying to make um, a part of working together collectively to keep us as a company, as a organization that's purpose-driven, true to our values, but also um, continuing to drive forward so that we service our clients. Because at the end of the day, the work that we do um, is not our own work products. It's supporting enterprise organizations and software vendors globally, while still also keeping our people safe and keeping um, the business moving forward as well. Mm, okay, so I can see what he meant by challenges. That sounds very, very challenging. Could you give me an example of like what maybe an example project is of what you would be working on, just so I can kind of like understand what SoftServe does? Absolutely. In our world, which is, if you want to call it IT services or IT consulting, we largely do um, outsource development services for large companies. SoftServe has around 450 clients globally. We operate in about 16 different countries. And as a firm, we would do work with large, let's say, medical device manufacturers or software providers, either in the medical space or other industries across the board to build some of their software and platforms and systems. It could be a digital experience in the context of um, a healthcare solution provider that's trying to take what might have been a manual process or a manual care pathway um, that was delivered directly by a doctor and a patient going into the doctor's office by building a digital experience around that. So the person, if especially if you can think about in the time of COVID, where we didn't really have the ability to go to the doctor's office because it was technically not safe because of how rampant that disease was, there was a huge shift to drive digitization in the industry to say, I still need to provide high levels of care, manage either emergent situations, chronic diseases, and SoftServe helps those types of firms ideate in terms of how they could build that type of experience and ultimately then execute to actually take that idea from something that's in the roadmap or on paper to actual working software that a patient can engage with, or if it's in the context of a bank, a customer can do whatever they need to, to manage their transactions and things like that. Got it. Okay. Very helpful. How many of your employees are in Ukraine or how many were and how many are now? So roughly, um, globally, we have around 13,000 um, associates in the firm and about 7,000 of them were in Ukraine at the start of the war. And back in February, when the first um, attack started, we immediately started basically a logistics operation to try to get people that were in or near conflict zones out of those zones, either 
starting kind of initially from, let's say, eastern Ukraine, where the initial invasion happened to western Ukraine. Some people, especially those of us in the States, may not realize how big the country is. But if you look at the western border from Poland to the eastern border um, to, let's say, the Russian Federation, that's almost 1,000 miles in terms of size. It's actually the largest country in Europe. So moving people from regions like Kharkiv, which was kind of in one of the initial areas of, of the attack, areas like Kiev, and what is now called the Donbass um, region as well. So relocating individuals and their families was honestly for the first, I'd say, two to four weeks, the main focus of what we were trying to do, while also maintaining continuity of service for our clients as well. There was obviously a lot of uncertainty with what was going on in the situation at the time, um, but our focus since the conflict and um, even to this day has been primacy about the safety of our team members because at the end of the day, we are a people business and our team is what makes soft serve. So we had to, as I think any organization should, put people first in this type of situation. And from the founders who um, originally built the company about 29 years ago, um, as of last week, actually, they've instilled that really into everyone in the leadership team. And that's a core value that we've driven as they can say, kind of been tested in um, the worst of times, frankly. And, and I have seen that everyone from the leadership team to individuals at all levels of the organization have been trying to find ways to support their team members, either offering housing assistance because maybe they had an extra bed in their house and someone was moving from um, east to west, or um, even if people were outside of the region, like we have offices in Poland and Bulgaria, trying to provide opportunities for people who were either in the conflict zone or close enough that they wanted to get out because it wasn't safe for them or their families um, to just find a place to sleep, but ultimately longer term, providing opportunities for those individuals to engage in the community and find longer term housing as well. Mm -hmm. What did it look like engaging with your clients with maybe not only messaging to them what was going on, but did you also find this like supportive layer within your community from your clients as well, or at least an understanding of like, okay, I might not get you know, top level service responsiveness during this week. And I at least know why. So it's actually kind of amazing. And we actually were tracking these metrics on a daily basis through a number of digital and in-person touch points about understanding the safety of individuals. Um, we actually use a platform, which is a part of what used to be Facebook for work. It's now called Workplace. So we were able to send um, real-time surveys out. And at the height of the conflict, we were doing it actually several times a day just because of how quickly the situation was changing to understand if people were in unsafe locations, A, what the status of those individuals were, and then from a continuity of service perspective, understanding how our teams could be able to do work. And basically for those individuals that were in transit, either getting away from um, a conflict zone to a, a safe location, what was their working status? I mean, there was a period, I'd say, in the first two weeks um, where we had an impact of about 15% of the workforce unable to work because they were moving from one safe location to an unsafe location. But really, after the first two weeks, maybe the third week, we've maintained productivity levels between 92 and it's right now about 99.5% um, overall from a firm perspective. And it's kind of amazing just to see. I've had people where literally they received an air raid siren because um, something was happening and they were on a conference call. They're like, I'm sorry, we, we need to go because wow. we have to be safe. But just the amount of focus on people have also seen work to a degree as an outlet, as a way to find ways that they can kind of put their energies elsewhere instead of kind of worrying about the situation. But overall, I, I'd say our clients and the global community, especially in the initial 
weeks and months of, of what was going on in the world has been nothing but supportive of Ukraine. I'm sure you've seen maybe in Austin or, or others um, around the world, kind of everyone's flying the Ukrainian flag in solidarity of what's going on there. And I have to say, we, we have truly some amazing clients who have done nothing but do what they can to support um, our team members through um, donations to help those individuals that are in need to making sure that we continue to do business with them and even grow our business overall. And it's really been amazing to see, especially from the initial days of the conflict, even to present, how our clients have kind of rallied around um, SoftServe as a Ukrainian founded, but still global organization in support of what's been going on in the world and making sure that we all move forward together. Yeah, that's great. Was there any experiences that you pulled from your past roles that kind of helped you? I mean, I'm sure there's been nothing like this, but like, are there any pieces where you're like, oh, I do kind of remember, you know, this one aspect of my previous role could kind of help in this way or just any way that you pulled from history? So I have to say, I really look at what the, the senior leadership team and the executive team did around crisis management with first off, just managing communication. And I think in any sort of crisis, if you look at what's happened in Ukraine or any sort of business challenge where maybe there's a natural disaster that has impacted your business or um, there's a security incident that you have to message out to clients what's going on in the world. The first focus of our communication strategy was to talk to our teams about what are their options for relocation, providing opportunities and even actual transportation to get from location A to location B and making sure that we had the right digital channels in place to be able to manage that. I'd say some of the tools that we used, as I mentioned, workplace for things like safety checks as a way to understand each individual situation. And then our emergency response team effectively drove interventions to the specific kind of safety situation of each individual. But then also our outward communication strategy. From the start of the conflict, we um, were sending daily messages to our clients about what is the state of our operations and to be honest, um, SoftServe is actually one of the few organizations that I'm aware of that has actually fully executed a business continuity plan. I know we all kind of did that as a part of COVID when the situation changed and we all had to shift from maybe a work in the office mode or hybrid to a true work from home environment. But um, SoftServe also, unfortunately, had gone through a similar experience where we had an office in Crimea in 2014 um, with the Russian invasion of that region. We had a, about a 300-person development operation in Sevastopol, which is one of the major cities um, on the Crimean Peninsula. And at that time, kind of the same lessons learned, we were able to take some of the kind of best practices of what worked well in that instance and apply. And, and obviously the scope of what happened over the last five months has been very different and obviously at a much larger scale um, that happened. But making sure that we had consistent communication to our clients, we were sending daily messages and updates about um, what was happening, making sure that they understood what the state of our teams were, what the state of our offices and infrastructure were. And at the same time, keeping that communication bi-directional so that if clients had concerns, we effectively able to work with them to mitigate some of those concerns or in cases where due to corporate policy or whatever the case may be, we had to shift workloads from teams that were originally based in Ukraine to other global locations that we operated in. We worked to effectively manage that transition plan. And the amazing thing is that through all of this, we actually expect to grow by 36% this year. Wow. Y'all need to be a case study. That's all I'm saying is like, you are a perfect case study for so many companies to look at is like, how can you grow a company when you're in that environment and you essentially take on an entire whole different kind of business. Like 
like you said, a logistics company is what you turned into to try and move your team members around and keep them safe and check on them. That's wild. Okay, so let's shift into the growth angle of your company. I want to hear about some of you know, the biggest projects you're working on that, you know, some of the biggest trends you're seeing, like what are the big hairy projects that you all are involved with right now? Absolutely. So first off, we do do a lot of work, um, which is kind of work for hire consulting. So we do have um, non-disclosure agreements. So I can't go, let's say, into direct yeah, specific. That's but, okay. Um, to kind of talk about some broad brushstrokes. Overall, I'd say soft service sweet spot has really been about building digital experiences and helping organizations that either have a lot of legacy technology in the enterprise or firms that have actually been built as digital natives. Um, They may have started up in the last five to 10 years where cloud computing um, is the way that they built their company and has become the backbone of how um, they engage firms. SoftServe has really been a part of enabling the transition for large enterprise firms that are maybe adopting those best practices and trying to take what has maybe been a manual process and digitizing it or more pervasively if let's say, if you look at areas like healthcare to kind of go back to a place that I've um, spent a lot of my personal time as a part of the pandemic, if you think about um, how organizations and individuals receive care, um, paid their bills to either the hospital or their um, medical um, payer, and even to the way that we engage as a a patient and a doctor in that relationship, um, COVID has really changed the way that a lot of both hospital providers to ecosystem partners like the life science um, companies that either make medical devices or provide um, biologic compounds as a pharma company are rethinking kind of the way they engage patients overall. And we've been in a place where we've been working with several of those firms to really reimagine the way that healthcare is delivered. Because if you think about the traditional way of, hey, I had an accident, I either go to the doctor to get something fixed or Um, I'm managing a chronic condition like renal disease or kidney disease where I have to go into um, a facility every month or every few weeks to get um, hemodialysis or peridialysis if that's um, your care intervention for that particular disease condition. We're working with those organizations to take a couple of different things. One is create a digitization layer around that experience so that you can directly connect with your doctor. And if you think about the traditional method of even telehealth, pre-COVID to where it is now, some of the visit numbers in Q3 of of 2020, kind of the height of the second wave of the pandemic, um, the CDC reported that roughly about 30 to 40% of doctor visits were were digital. And if you look at those same numbers before the pandemic, it was less than 5, 10% overall. And it's really changed the paradigm of how we as individuals want to engage with our doctors. If we have a sniffle, we can call somebody on Teladoc or a similar type of platform, engage with a doctor to get um, a medication, which enables me to move forward. But they're also looking at how that um, type of care paradigm is happening for um, chronic conditions as well. Because maybe if I'm stage one or two um, renal disease, which is, doesn't require that kind of very costly intervention like hemodialysis or peridialysis, I can meet with a nurse practitioner in a virtual environment and that person can actually increase their caseload by using digital assistive technology as a way to see the patients they need to see in person, but also coordinate that care so that they can get to the right care provider um, in the right time. Because especially um, with what COVID has done to the the healthcare system, it's really stretched our ability to give and receive care just because of how much um, was going through the system at that time. And another thing that we're also seeing is, for lack of a better term, um, the application of AI and machine learning into early stages of how um, we can get better at disease prevention. 
we've actually built an application that um, if you think about that telehealth example, if I'm a doctor and I'm talking, like we're talking on the screen here today, I really have no ability to run the typical diagnostic battery of tests like, hey, what's my blood pressure? <laughs> what's the temperature that I have? The stuff that we would all do um, when we walk into the doctor's office. So we've actually built um, a machine learning model that uses information on the camera and we're actually looking at biomarkers on the face to determine oxygenation rate, um, the breathing rate of an individual. And if you think about that in the context of like COVID as an example, maybe that's something that gives the doctor enough information to say, hey, this patient really knows to go to the emergency room or maybe he can rest in place because he's only experiencing kind of mild symptoms um, to be able to manage through um, what's going on with the disease. And we're looking at the application of technology like that. And SoftServe has been building some of that technology in-house, but also working, frankly, mostly with our clients and our solution providers that we partner with to build that kind of ecosystem to really transform the way that we deliver healthcare. And I think if you look five to 10 years out, I think it's going to be a very different world when we get to 2030 to the way um, we started 2020 in this decade in terms of um, how we deliver care. Because really, honestly, healthcare has advanced significantly in terms of our outcomes, but it hasn't really materially changed in about 100 years. And I think digital assistive technology, things like AI, is really going to transform over the next five to 10 years um, what I consider really an emerging market because of how much transformation is out there and the ability for those technologies to ultimately improve patient outcomes, save lives, and ultimately improve the way care is delivered and received for everyone in the system. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Yep, I love that. I was just actually going to ask you about your thoughts on AI, because what came to mind was when I used to work at Google, they had these talks. And I remember specifically one where they were talking about using AI with diagnosing problems. And this was around like cataracts, I think, um, it, you know, with uh, people in different countries outside the US and how like 90% of the time these doctors were diagnosing it incorrectly and then people were going blind. And they're saying, and if you use AI to diagnose it, it was diagnosing it like 99% correctly and it was catching it way earlier. And it made me think like, do we need all the doctors we have versus why not have AI go through it and be like, here's probably the top three scenarios based off the pictures, the biomarkers. I mean, to me, it always feels so silly that we're trusting one person to know everything that honestly, the internet and there's all these research papers, like how would this one person know all of that? And maybe they can use AI to support them, but it seems like that's like a huge area just for diagnosing and even being able to like offer up like, you know, here's the prescription needed and maybe someone signs off on it to make sure it's okay. But like taking out this whole beginning part feels like the next step to me and I'm a novice. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on like where AI is taking this industry. 
I think it's a really interesting concept. And if you look at AI in the context of healthcare delivery, it's still in its kind of very infancy stages if you look at it from an overall perspective. So there is a lot of technology that needs to advance in terms of the efficacy of that kind of treatment intervention. So another example that I've seen, and I think it was actually something that came from um, Google or what used to be DeepMind, which was a Google acquisition, where they were looking at skin cancer cells to determine malignancy, right? And the optical scanning and reading of that technology to determine clinical efficacy, you're, you're very close. I think it was like 90, 95% accurate in terms of how well they could be able to identify malignant cells. But I think the other thing that's important is because the technology is not there, for now, it really needs to still be an assistive technology to the doctor because at the end of the day, the doctor still needs to be managing the clinical decision. In five to 10 or even 15 years, I definitely think more of that workload could be shifted to automated systems. But we're in kind of the crawl, walk, run phase, if you will. I'm still figuring out those models, and those models need to be tested on millions of patients over the course of a period of time. And that's kind of the training of the machine learning model or the algorithm itself. And as those algorithms improve their efficacy, I definitely think it will be something that helps doctors scale. So if you think about a doctor that maybe manages, I don't know, a thousand cases a year, just speaking conversationally, if they could use AI technology as a way to augment their decisioning process and help prioritize the cases that they need direct intervention on, I think that's a really interesting paradigm because if you think about the concept of like care coordination, where maybe I have a doctor that's a um, neuro specialist that focuses on brain disease or brain cancer, things like that, that person is a highly compensated individual and at the same time, a highly sought after individual because of the demands of that person's time. And if somebody is maybe early stages, like let's say, for example, they had a minor accident that had a concussion. It didn't, let's say, progress to the point of something like a tumor or a wider um, intervention that's needed. Getting that person in front of a nurse practitioner that could evaluate that individual, um, have a conversation, and using something like AI as a tool to be able to determine, for lack of a better term, coordination of the right resource to the right patient, I think that's a really interesting space that we're actually doing some work on with one of our partners, Pegasystems, to think about how, from a business perspective, we can improve the efficiency of a hospital or a doctor's network um, that, frankly, is is doing it the best it can to service the patients that it has, but doing it in a more efficient way so that the right um, individual who can provide the best care for that particular case um, can be brought to that individual. And at the end of the day, an AI is not exactly going to solve that problem fully, but we're starting to think about how those types of models could ultimately improve care outcomes and pathways for um, individuals. And it's early days, but I'm pretty excited to see potentially where that technology could be in the next two to five years. Yeah. I mean, do you look at this industry and just like burst with ideas? Because to me, this is like an industry where you just take best practices from probably another industry and bring it over to healthcare and be like, yeah, now all of a sudden you have access to a million images of, you know, skin cancer that you can train your models on. We'll do that for you. I mean, it seems like it's already done in other industries in some ways that you could just apply it here. Like, are you super excited when you look at this and like know what you could do? Yeah, I was actually... I spent some time with the former CEO of Medtronic, and he actually kind of described healthcare as an emerging market. It's kind of crazy to think about one of the largest industries in in America in terms of GDP, in terms of spending for individuals and for the whole system as a whole. We're in such an inflection point of 
where technology application can be in that industry. Because if you think about a smartwatch and having, as an example, an EKG built into your Apple Watch, for somebody that has a chronic um, heart condition, just having that device always on monitoring what's going on with your individual person can provide direct intervention if there's, let's say, arrhythmia or an issue that they need direct medical intervention. It can send a notification to a care provider. Five, 10 years ago, this was the stuff of science fiction. And it's pretty amazing to see how it's really coming to light. And I just think there's so many examples of where, to your point about kind of taking other industry examples of where that application can be brought into improve the overall experience of healthcare delivery. And honestly, you could say the same thing of other industries as well, like even manufacturing that's going through a huge wave of digitization where traditionally, let's say a factory that was built in a very manual process where people either assembled things, obviously um, things like the automotive industry has got different levels of digital adoption, but smaller factories, as an example, are finding ways to apply some of the lessons learned from even their own industry or other industries to be able to apply those solutions and, and try to make them more efficient from an overall perspective. And what we're really seeing is that convergence of digital technology from an overall perspective is getting to the point that it reaches fruition and maturity within certain industries. And then there's kind of a breakthrough moment when the paradigm of how we operated five, 10 years ago completely changes. If I look at even banking to an example, if I remember when I started banking and kind of my relationship with my first bank at a college I had to go to the teller basically for every transaction known to man, right? I was actually a part of the team that rolled out a mobile check deposit with one of the largest banks in North America. And it was the first example of that in the US. And from that perspective, just something as simple as taking a photo of the check, reading the information about the check, it probably just saved people a fair amount of time. And now we're seeing that kind of same paradigm now apply into other areas of the banking industry where instead of going into the branch to solve a common problem, you can have a chat with Eric and the Bank of America app, or you can have a conversation with a chatbot that can offload some of the, the work that either a human had to be deployed to solve that person's issue, um, or that person can just solve their issue themselves because they can um, have a conversation with that digital assisted and either answer the question about, hey, what's the nearest branch? to even handling some of the more complex tasks, like, hey, I want to execute a trade um, to buy some Rivian stock or something like that. What we're seeing is that that paradigm, if you look at areas like banking and retail, which have pretty high levels of digitization, they're now starting to take those kind of same paradigms in even healthcare, as an example, with that same kind of intelligent self-service model, where if you go, I can't remember any payer application that I really loved, let's say, where um, I've worked with my health plan and I'm really excited about getting my explanation of benefits. But if you think about it, the way that you connect with a digital chatbot and the way that that's already been implemented in banking, that kind of same paradigm could apply for healthcare, where instead of having to call into um, your health plan, you can have a conversation with an, a digital agent. Maybe he can get you 30% of the way there before you need human intervention. But one of the things that's also important is it could route that person appropriately to the right resource. So you don't have to call in, go through the same script where you say, hey, I'm Adam, I'm trying to understand my um, recent EOB. The chatbot can use natural language processing to understand the context of what you're doing, intelligently route you using what is kind of like an automated context center solution like AWS Connect and bring you to the person that is the best person that can solve that problem for you. And if you can go from a time to resolution of minutes or seconds even to a degree, 
that increases the efficiency and reduces the cost of running and supporting that member as a part of their experience. And we're seeing that kind of paradigm shift happen a lot where other industries are learning some of the best practices and let's say the tips and tricks that a lot of other organizations have adopted or have trialed. And now they're starting to bring those POCs into their ecosystem as well. And I think overall, we're just seeing it over the last five to 10 years, the percentage of experimentation that's happening even in large industries is increasing significantly because they're running those POCs that allow them to test um, using human-centered design-based approaches. And once that idea is either has legs or for lack of a better term, is something that can move um, either a process or a workload forward, um, it's something that's adopted in industries. And we're seeing more and more big industries, even like banking, thinking more like a product company rather than a bank. Well, they have to now because all the startups are kind of forcing them in that direction. If you keep operating the way you always have, you might go out of business because I think the younger consumer is used to, yeah, something very different. I do have a request for you all that I think you could build for me or, you know, I love to throw out random ideas and then maybe no one wants them. I think that you all should be putting patient data on the blockchain because every time I go into the doctor's office and they're like, tell me about your family history, I'm literally like, hello, mom. I don't know if you've seen that TikTok where it's like the younger girl, like calling her mom, even though she's like 21. She's like, mom, is this in my family history? And I've answered this so many times. I'm like, can it just be in one area, it doesn't change. And then the doctors can just add to it and they all can just share among each other, but it's never, you know, a thing anymore. Anyways, that's my idea for you all to solve one day. <laughs> that's a really great idea. And it's actually, um, from a regulatory standpoint, it's actually not been something that has been possible up until recently a law passed called the 21st Century Cures Act. While it doesn't solve everything that you're talking about, what it does mandate is that hospitals need to provide interoperability of data. So the exact use case is, let's say you have a doctor that's a part of, I live up here in Boston, so Mass General or um, that kind of network. And then you might have a specialist in a different network. There's really no picture of Adam as a whole patient and a whole person. And I think we're still a little bit away from using blockchain as a technology, but I think it's definitely the right way to do it. Oh. But if you think <laughs> about it, though, there should be aggregation of my health data so that A, because I moved from city A to city B, um, they carry over your health file because I remember how much fun it was when I moved yeah. um, from Rhode Island to Boston just to get my health records transferred. They're like, can you fax them? Like, what's that? What do you want me to do? I actually don't. Is that an email? <laughs> Very confusing. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's just an, an example of where these organizations are starting. Now the regulatory framework is in place that that's possible. And I do think that either blockchain or similar types of digital asset management will enable us to have better sharing of medical records, but do it in obviously a secure and HIPAA compliant way. Because the last thing that we want is let's say some dirty laundry for my health record to get out that's um, out there that would be something that either prevents me from a job or um, violates my, my personal privacy as well. So it's a balance between sharing of data, but also maintaining the privacy of the individual, which is paramount in the healthcare industry and, and regulated um, through HIPAA. Yeah, got it, got it. Okay, well, so there's hope. That's what I'm hearing. I'm excited about that. So what is one thing right now that you think a lot of big organizations are missing, whether it's like a trend or something that you're just kind of spotting that maybe a lot of companies are not even looking at. So I think one of the biggest paradigm shifts that we're seeing, and this is actually something really across all industries, is I've heard this called cooperation, um, where organizations are kind of in the traditional model, they may have been competitors. They're actually creating networks of collaboration, if you will. 
I've actually seen this in the financial services industry as one example where these concepts of marketplaces are getting spun up, where if you think about it, if I'm a, a tier one bank and I might be one of the largest financial institutions in the globe, they're starting to work with mom and pop fintech and organizations that are in startup mode to maybe mid or kind of early stage of their platform development. And they're starting to create ecosystem experiences that if let's say I was launching a new mortgage origination process, I'm even trying to launch a new digital experience for my customers. What they're doing is they're directly engaging with fintechs or communities that are in the ecosystem that they service around And they're leveraging those types of platforms, which traditionally might have taken in a bank in the traditional way um, they were developing, let's call it a year to even two years to roll out. And what they're able to do is aggregate um, technology with some of these early stage startups, leverage that technology into the ecosystem and create a unified experience that solves the business problem, improves the customer experience, sometimes even in weeks to months at the end of the day. And a lot of large organizations like some of the biggest banks in the, the world are even re-architecting the way that they operate. And even, let's say, a CIO that traditionally ran the technology organization in um, a large financial institution is re-architecting himself as, as a person to be a product leader. And to think not of running, let's say, a tower of asset management technology or retail banking technology, they're re-architecting their role and their teams to be feature-driven so that instead of, let's say, being the asset wealth management CIO, he's the product owner for asset management or, let's say, direct consumer investments. And he builds a product based on a more traditional product roadmap that you'd see at a Silicon Valley firm. And a lot of the lessons learned from what we've seen over the last 20 years in terms of how startups have adopted agile or whatever kind of development methodology that you subscribe to, they're re-architecting their businesses to be truly agile organizations where instead of having, let's say, that kind of monolithic IT organization that um, does everything for the business and manages those systems and tries to manage risk out of those systems, they're adopting kind of the approach of let's build a POC, test the idea, roll it out. And if it gains efficacy, either kill it or, or invest in it further to make it even better. So if you look at how SoftServe, in terms of ways that we're supporting our clients from that approach, a lot of firms in our industry, typically, if you think about kind of IT services or consulting, from how the industry kind of grew up over the last 20 years, from Y2K remediation in the early 2000s to the 90s and the 2000s in the the global outsourcing movement, a lot of it has been about trying to use human capital, development talent, business process outsourcing as a way to remove operational cost. And SoftServe's approach is very different in terms of what we're focused on for supporting our firms. And we believe that it has to be a combination of really great people. And we think we've got some of the best in the world in that regard, but also assets, partner solutions um, that make it faster to build things in the future. So if you're, let's say, to kind of bring it back to maybe healthcare for a second, you're a hospital system or you're a U.S. payer and you're trying to build a digital experience for, like we talked about before, a patient giving receiving care or a doctor giving care or a payer that's trying to manage the process of claims and things like that for um, the hospital system. What we've done is we've built assets that enable faster time to market. So if the traditional way, for lack of a better term, um, to build that type of digital platform, conversationally speaking, was going to take 100 man days to build it. 
what we typically do is using a combination of really great engineers and technologists and designers and assets, which are something that maybe is a pre-built component like a login screen, we can typically reduce the time to market for our clients between 60 and 50%. And at the end of the day, it makes that platform easier to build because frankly, once you build a login screen once, while um, the place that you authenticate and, and make sure that their security might be different between client A, B, C, and D, the underlying foundational technology is the same. And I don't know if there's any really any special stuff about um, login screens other than things like third factor, multi-factor authentication. But at the end of the day, once you've built that once, you can reuse that component many times. And what that enables us to do is become more price competitive for our clients. But it, at the end of the day, it helps get outcomes faster for those organizations that are trying to launch that from an overall perspective. And we built this platform, which we call Human360, as an accelerant for organizations that at the most foundational level are building those types of platforms. But what we're also doing now is working with several of our clients in the software provider space, be it health techs or med techs that are um, building ecosystems and that are supporting um, improving health outcomes and connecting those platforms directly into our ecosystem so that the next time that a health system is trying to launch um, a digital patient experience, instead of having to build that from scratch and just use, let's say, what's provided from their EMR um, or EHR solution provider like Epic or Cerner, we can build a better experience for those individuals and take a lot of the commonality that's a part of that process and, and reduce the complexity of having to implement it. And it really cuts time and aid the design pattern so you don't have to reinvent um, the way that that component is designed and it's useful, usable, and desirable for the individual in the experience. But it also cuts down the development time, the cost of maintaining the infrastructure, and it ultimately improves quality because you're not really having to go through the same um, rigmarole of trying to start from scratch and build everything um, from net new and make it easier for clients to adopt from an overall perspective. How do you make sure you all stay innovative with you know, coming up with these components instead of just reusing maybe ones that, you know, okay, I see this over here in the finance industry. Let's pull this into healthcare. I see this in aerospace. Like we already have all the components made. How do you get outside of that pulling effect, which is obviously very efficient and probably very helpful for a while and be like, okay, now we need to find the innovators in this space. And like, how do we make sure not all of our clients are the same? Absolutely. So it's actually a combination of a couple areas. We've actually directly built um, academic institution partnerships. So if you think about organizations like the University of Cambridge, um, several institutions in Western Ukraine where our, our firm was originally founded, we're working with academics that are thinking about the next theoretical problem, if you will, and helping to either provide teams that can help build those types of assets in, in a POC mode. And if it's something that can be commercially viable, we, we invest in that solution to develop it further. But SoftServe is also directly invested in building our own R&D organization. And we actually have about 100 PhDs on staff that are in wide-ranging areas like machine learning models and biochemistry. We actually built a platform called our Life Sciences Data Platform that uses machine learning models to identify, if you think, if you know how a drug is made, what typically happens is you're starting from tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of compounds that could potentially cure cancer or do something that could revolutionize a particular disease state or condition. And what we've done is we've taken a machine learning model in partnership with one of our academic institutions, and we're able to reduce molecule selection down from tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands to candidates of typically hundred. 
or less even. And we built that in partnership with our academic institution because our teams were actually co-publishing papers with those firms in terms of the application of that technology. So if you think about it, that team kind of looks to stay about three to five years ahead of the curve in terms of the ideas that are going forward. And obviously, a lot of what we do is what's happening now, or, or let's say transforming a business today or three months or six months out from now. So we take those applications of the things that are future-proof. If you think of um, things like the Gartner hype cycle in terms of technology adoption, we actively look at those to say, where are the areas that we should be investing in? And if we see an opportunity for us to better serve our clients and advance either medicine, banking, insert other things here, we're able to do that by directly building out those assets. And then at the end of the day, providing those assets as a part of the service that we provide to our clients, which like we said earlier, kind of helps them get things done faster, cheaper, better. Yep. Is there anything that you see right now in the world of academia and research that you're like, that's crazy and it might just work in a couple of years or so? <laughs> and this is like you personally, maybe not like what the company's betting on, but something like you're really excited about and kind of watching closely. I'm really excited to see where this the metaverse concept is going to go. And, and I know it's not directly an academic approach, but if you think about how we as a as a physical community connect with each other, um, we've had social networks for going on 15 years now. And I can tell you, for me, Facebook is not exactly the way that I connect with my friends anymore. I try to connect with them directly. But if you think about if I have, um, I used to live in Sydney, Australia, as an example. I have a lot of friends and family down there where for me to get down there is a 24-hour flight or for them to come here, same thing. But if I had the ability to create better connections of a community in a digital format and I wanted to go out and get a drink even in a virtual context with one of my friends or just have a chat with them, sure, I can pick up the phone and do that and have a FaceTime call. But if you think about the experiential component of what the metaverse can and will provide, being able to walk into a coffee shop with someone, even if I'm picking up a virtual cup of coffee, it's a much more robust experience in terms of creating better connections in the global community that we're in. And then if you also think about some of the commercial aspects of that as well, like what is banking going to look like in the metaverse? How is digital assets like crypto or blockchain technology going to transform the way that we monetize um, that type of relationship? I know my kids are are kind of big video game fans. And um, one of my kids likes games like World of Warships, where they'll spend $40 on this pixel, which is a ship. It's like kind of crazy to think about. But if you look at that in the context of even a virtual environment, where you can buy a house or you can get some Nike air shoes. I think the way that we interact with our physical and virtual world, we're going to see a very deep convergence happening over the next five to 10 years. I think we're still in infancy mode, but that's one of the things that really excites me in terms of the business side of it, which is cool to me, but also the personal interaction side of being able to engage with my global community and my friends and family um, all over the world. Yep. I love it. All right. Well, Adam, thanks so much for jumping on here today and telling us what you're up to. Um, until next time, where can people learn more about you and SoftServe? Feel free to go to softserveinc.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty avid about posting around trends in technology or business overall. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.
Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.